21 Elephants by Scruffy Wee. Winky One Elephants. Well, Scotty Reeves, Banky Moore, how are you? Oh, so good, back here in the beautiful mainland. Yeah, it's great to have you here. Because hey. oh, um, we tend to go, kind of alternate back and forth, mm. don't we? Yep, you, come, yep. you come to Christchurch and I go to the North Island and it's just a, it's a wonderful thing. You know, have I told you how dearly I love you and how you're just such you, a dear friend? You tell me this many times a day. And I think your, your love language may be words of affirmation. And touch. And touch. How many hugs have you had from me? Yes. Apparently there's a difference, though, between the way the love languages you receive and the love languages you give. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I understand, I understand. Well, I love yeah. to give you hugs. I love yep. to hug you from uh, in front, from side, from behind. I like to hug you every direction. Yep. And whisper words of affirmation into my ear while I you do. do it. I do. Is that help? Does that help kind of reparent you? Uh, no, not not so much my love language. Because I see not, myself not as... Not how I like to receive love. ...a sort of father figure for you. Oh, do you? Hmm. And mm. I hope you can receive that love. I kind of see you as... Yes. Kind of like a Benjamin Button kind of figure in my life. Well, it's hard to know what to do with that. Like an old um, man but... slowly growing smaller. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Scotty. But uh, full of wisdom. Full yeah, of wisdom. Yeah, that's true. That's fair. Well, one of the reasons why Scotty and I's friendship is so strong is because we live in different cities. Mm. And so that means <laughs> that um, when we see each other, it's, it's good. Do you know what I mean? It's hey. good, eh? We don't have to have too much to do with each other. We don't have to really get on each other's nerves. And we can have deep conversations about the rub of living in community while never doing it together. I love it. It's great. That's my favourite kind of Christianity. <laughs> right there. Um, anyway, so let's recap. This is 21 Elephants podcast. And in season one, what did we, did we do? Scotty came down. You just put out a book. Yep, we got together and I um, shared some of the stories from that book and we went a little deeper on some of those themes eh, and and had a chat about it. Um, And then season two, uh, we came up with this idea where Scotty said, you've got to get out of this mainland, um, you know, the the, the bigotry, the rural, (laughs) the the narrow-minded imagination. That's exactly how I said it, actually. This was his pitch. Yeah. And um, I flew up to the North Island and we went on a road trip. Yep. Uh, What were we doing on that road trip? We were looking for... Ancient solutions to modern problems. So we hung out with monks, we hung out with um, priests and uh, indigenous activists and, and all sorts of different people um, with uh, with passions for ancient ways that might um, lead us back into wholeness for our modern problems. And so we're back doing a season three for, for some reason. And we would like, uh, thank you so much to everyone who um, sends messages and mm. is appreciative of the podcast because I don't think we thought it would be... Um People would really listen. There are a few of you out there. So why, though? I mean, you know, it's fine. Look, it's fine to do something once. That's a challenge. Second time, you know, why not? But mm. third time, why are we back here doing a third season of Twenty One Elephants? What is why? Why have you? Why are you here in my upper room in my house, <laughs> speaking into these pantyhose pop shields that we've made out of coat hangers? So I don't want to answer that question directly, but four or five years ago. I was chatting to a friend of mine, Aidy, 
and he shared this amazing story with me. Just like absolutely batshit crazy. You have not heard a story like this in a long time. Certainly not from someone you know, right? This right, is right. like So this is a very good story. This is a very, very good story. And um and AD is the, the perfect person to tell it. And partly the story is just so outrageous that you just kind of won't believe it. It's very, very funny. But as as I ruminated on the story and kind of the, the years after I've heard it, I, I recently kind of came to this realization of 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 all these questions it was raising in my mind, which which cut to the heart, I think, of what a bunch of us as millennials, as young adults and Christians are thinking about these things of of purpose and um and conscience and vocation and compassion, I think. It just really speaks I think there are some deep modern questions that this incredible story brings up. Um, I want to hear the story. Yeah, I'm well, desperate to hear the story, if it's this good. I, I think it, it, it's an incredible story, so I think we should just, just get into it, eh? I saw a little girl on the front page of the Dominion Post. It's now a, just rubble. The article goes on to explain all her family, apart from, I think it's her father, uh, has died. And this little girl you see vividly in the picture, her dress is torn and her legs are missing at the knees. Mm. And this, and she's been cradled and, and the look, she's got a peaceful look, her eyes are closed and her father's looking into her. And the pain of that man, and that man looked a bit, a bit like me. And his little girl looked a bit like my little girl, Ari. I felt moved at that point. My conscience is stirred. And, and when I read my gospel, it says all of the law and all of the prophets can be summed up in one thing. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. So can I sit back comfortably in my garden in my paradise um, and say to my brother in Iraq, oh, well, you know, good luck, you know, all the best, hope it works out for you. Or what, what would I want? him to do for me if our places were reversed? What would I want him to do to prevent a cruise missile hitting my family? I would want him to go to all manner of lengths to save me and my family. Mm. What am I prepared to do to him? And so we started planning a conspiracy of love. get moved, you're faced with some difficult choices. Now, unfortunately, I'm a coward, and it took years to build up the courage to act. So when that little girl was cradled in her father's arms in 2003, it was five years later that our conspiracy came to fruition. This spy base operates from uh, Blenheim, and then we have um, several hundred staff working in Wellington who are Arabic translators, who are part of this network, who are spying and gathering intelligence for um, this war on terror, supposedly. We have um, aircraft that have surveillance capacity. We have battleships that go out of the ocean. So we are projecting our power, we are projecting our surveillance out into um, the world, and we are part of this intimate um, club of intelligence gathering and, and weapons delivery. Our hands have blood on it, 
And so when we had made all those connections and we'd done all our homework, we were moved to say, we need to disrupt this. We needed to put our bodies on the line. And so as three highly intelligent operatives, we devised a a brilliant foolproof plan, a plan that you may already um, be imagining uh, because it's so obvious. To get into um, New Zealand's most secure facility, with 40,000-volt electric fences, double fencing, razor wire, security cameras, lights, security guards, the whole shebang, it is impenetrable. To get into a place like that and disrupt its operation, you're going to need a truck with a high-ab crane on the back to lift <laughs> activists over all of the security devices <laughs> onto the other side. So, I mean, clearly. Can't clearly. go under it, got to go over it. Exactly. So we looked at a number of things, trampolines, there was a whole, a whole lot of different... So we went through the whole spectrum and settled on um, a, a brilliant plan. Uh, we bought the crane, because we didn't want to hire one, because that would be um, inconvenient to the hire company. So we bought a crane and we did it up and we practised. We did time trials on the back paddock. We mocked up a sort of a imitation fence um, to scale... And we were doing headlight, you know, putting our night like um, night vision goggles on, no, our headlamps on, and we we trained and prepared and prayed day and night for about four or five months, um, and then we moved our vehicle down to picked it into position, and then the night before the action, we did a lot of preparation, a lot of work, and we also realised we had moments of doubt. When you're doing something like this, you can you can have moments where you think, oh, maybe this isn't going to work. Maybe this isn't a, isn't a good idea. Maybe um, uh, I should stay home and you know look after the family. So these are the these are the challenges when you put yourself out there. You go through waves of clarity and waves of doubt mm. and and confusion. But it was personal. It was about a little girl for me, mm. about a little girl who looked like my child. And what would I do to save her being hurt? What mm. would I do to save another little girl being hurt? That's what drove me. That's what motivated me. So um, we came to the night. We decided to do an all-night prayer vigil. So about 25 of us parked um, up outside of the spy base front gate. We prayed all night. I've been a Christian for 43 years. I've been to church every Sunday for 43 years. I've loved Jesus and worshipped, and I, I believe it's all true. I am 100% as Christian as I can possibly be, but I hadn't spent one night praying. I thought, what have I been doing? I might have probably watched a few videos all night, and I've probably done a few other all-night activities, but um, I hadn't prayed. Hello? So it was great. So a whole lot of us prayed all night, and um, then we celebrated Mass. We had a priest with us, we celebrated Mass at the front gate as dawn rose at 6 a.m., and the sun came over the hills and shined on that valley where the spy base is, and we had a little imagination, we had a little dream that maybe one day this valley could exist without the spy base there. Mm. Uh, 24 hours later, we dispersed, and then the three of us gathered in Picton with the fourth member of our group, who's the IT guy. Every group like this needs an IT fella. Um, <laughs> Manu Caddy, amazing guy. So we were starting to feel a bit anxious. I remember we were waiting for fish and chips, and there was a guy ahead of us, and it looked like he had an earpiece in his ear and a little twirly um, wire going down his collar. 
and we thought that's a bit weird and then we walked down to the beach at Picton and ate our fish and chips and we saw him again looking in our direction and then at that moment two Iroquois helicopters flew overhead going from Wellington in the direction of the spy base and then we were reading the local paper and it said three black large SUVs, tinted windows, black cars had been seen in the Blenheim area driving around. Who are they? What are they doing? What are these surveillance vehicles doing? And we thought that was weird. And we were sort of at this real turning point. Our anxiety Mm. levels were high. We were just hours from doing this action. And we thought, oh no, we've been infiltrated. They know the plan. They know what we're doing. And um, we should really give up. But we had a moment of clarity. Um, A a quote from a a young homeless woman who was living with us. And she said, either they will know or they won't know. So when we realised that, we thought, well, that's good. That's clear, eh? Because they're either going to get you up front. Yes. Or you're going to get away with it. Because we couldn't fathom it out. Mm. We just had to proceed Mm. in faith. We went to an abandoned quarry, because every story like this needs an abandoned quarry. (laughs) Um, And um, I remained in the truck, and the other guys went ahead to do last-minute surveillance and reconnaissance on the base and check how firm the paddocks were, because we're not on the truck to sink. So they all go ahead and I wait in the quarry. I'm waiting for a phone call, 2 a.m. So by 3, 4, no phone call. 4 or 4.30, coming to 5, no phone call. So I ring, say, what's going on? And um, Father Peter, the Dominican priest in his 60s, who's one of the three of us, he says, did you get my text? And I, well, I said, what's a text? I've heard a text, um, but I just wasn't sure. Um, and he said, don't worry about it now. I'll explain it to you later. Just start driving. So I drove the truck a few k's through the Blenheim wine fields and then arrived at the spy base rendezvous. A bicycle was taken off of the truck for Sam to go and padlock some gates to delay the police if necessary. And then the priest and I approached the spy base from some back old dirt tracks. Our anxiety levels might have been increasing or our excitement levels were increasing. And taking a corner a little bit too fast, I slide the truck off the road into a ditch, which wasn't part of the plan at all. So the truck's lying in the ditch on its side and um, the priest and I sort of get out and we're in a little bit of shock. But we spent about the next half an hour trying to use the crane to lift the truck out of the ditch. But of course, elementary physics tells us that you can't you know, lift yourself off the ground. <laughs> and so trying to use the crane attached to the truck to lift... Anyways, I, I, I can explain it to you later in more detail. Um, probably needs um, pictures. And then Sam turns up, blood all over his face. Oh and he says, what happened to you? And we said, what happened to you? And we said, oh, I asked you first. No, no, I asked you first. And so finally, Sam said, as he was riding through the vineyards trying to rendezvous with us, uh, he hit a fence in the dark and, and somersaulted off his bike. And then we explained how we took the corner too quick and we're in the ditch. And so we're all sitting there in the rain and the mud and the blood, sitting there thinking, oh, things aren't going so good. <laughs> yeah. Things could be going better. Um, but we had that little voice inside all of us that was saying, go on, I am with you, I love you, you are my children, you are my sons, and take heart, don't be afraid, and what you're doing is a joy to me and probably to many others in the future. 
So we packed up all our stuff and we tiptoed through the vineyards and then finally we get to the big field where the spy base is located and we did that commando thing on your tummy, you know, on your elbows and knees. And so we wriggled across this big paddock carrying all our banners, our gear, our shrine, our brass trumpet, a whole lot of items. I won't go into essential all of them. Kit. And why essential kit, basically, you know, standard procedure. So <laughs> we eventually get to the, the, the gates we see all the lights, we see all the camera security, the razor wire and all of the 40,000 volt electric cables um, securing the whole place. Uh, the drizzle sets in, uh, we use some bolt cutters and we clear away the hurricane netting and exposing um, the electric cables that need to be cut, 40,000 volts. And, um, and again, um, Sam, who's a, a young uh, farmer, um, a self-sufficient um, organic farmer from up north, he and I have that. We had that same little voice at the same time. It was quite interesting, and the little voice was saying, "Give the bolt cutters to the elderly priest to cut the electric." Um, so that was that was a, sort of a coincidence. Um, and so, um, in fact, if you're ever doing anything like this yourself, to have a Catholic priest with you is really, really good. So, so he had an awesome good, prayer. Because I'm an Anglican priest. Well, same thing. Me. It's all good. The Anglican cats all the same. Uh, it's just a matter of time before you come back. Um, so, um, so, so here, this lovely prayer just happened to know a suitable prayer for the exorcism of military spy bases and for the cutting of electric forty thousand volt electric electric wires. So, so he, he rolled that out, and then he got the cutters, and then he cut it, and he wasn't electrocuted to death at all. Sparks flew, but because the whole circuit was on a pulse thing, like a giant cattle fence, he was fine. So we cut about four or five of those create a hole crawl into the corridor of fences and then all the spotlights are on us the cameras are on us but no alarms went off we cut through the next fence with steel bars now we're in the base we run across some more grass we cut through another fence with steel bars and there are the giant domes 40 feet high Um, towering above us, so tall they have a red light on top to stop planes from crashing into them. They're enormous. Supposedly they're there as a weather-protecting thing, but as it turns out, the military did not want people seeing where the dishes were being pointed, so mm-hmm. the domes pretend, uh, prevent anyone from seeing what satellites the, right. the dishes might be spying on. So the domes were there... Um, we pray, I laid my hand on the dome and said, in the name of Jesus Christ, we disarm you. We pull out our sickles, which we had in our bag, and we cut open the dome and all the air comes whooshing out because of the fans that hold up the dome. So we cut around. Sam does big crosses because that's who wanted to do that, and and I was cutting around the base. But then the whole thing started to collapse on top of us, mm. and so we had to sort of cut another hole and get out, otherwise we probably would have been crushed to death. And then we got out, built a little shrine on the outside, just beside the fence that hugs the dome, and there we cried and prayed for the dead and dying that um, have been hurt by this facility. We had a shrine, we had a picture of Oscar Romero, we had um, some readings, uh, we were covered in mud, and we just sat there and prayed and sang very badly. 
Um, and then some torches eventually came around, and it was security staff. Um, and they could see that their giant dome was uh, now deflated, um, and sirens were going off. And they came and said, "Stay there." And we said, "It's okay. Um, you know, we've come here to pray. Would you like to join us?" They made it clear that they weren't going to. Um, we gave them the keys to the front gate because we'd locked it up, and so they helped to get the police in. The police cars came zooming over the hill, but went past and went down the road and had to turn around and come all the way back because they missed the entrance. Um, and then eventually they got us there and we, we talked. And the, the cops were really great. They'd seen a lot of weird stuff in their careers. Um, they were sort of smiling. They were trying to be professional, but they were sort of smiling. Um, and they saw the banners and they saw our shrine and they could see that we were there doing an act of Christian charity and justice. Um, and so they arrested us and took us in the paddy wagons out of the spy base. As we were leaving the spy base gate, um, I saw my friend um, Justin and um, Tom, um, yeah, Bishop Justin, just coincidentally just happened to be at the front gate of the spy base that morning. He's <laughs> taking um, a walk on. Uh, so he, I know, I know, he's a strange guy, so he, he, he just happened to be out there in the, in the, in the wilderness um, at, the, at the gate of the, um, of the spy base with his Bible open and... Um, and praying uh, with his mate Tom. And at the moment, Justin pulls out a disposable camera, snaps a photo of the spy base. And some months later, he comes and visits me and says, oh, I've got a photo for you. And in the photo is the spy base. You've got one dome that's still standing, and you've got the other dome that's deflated. And then out of the sky, out of a huge cloud, just at, at dawn, at sunrise... A giant rainbow is coming out of the sky, landing onto the deflated spy base dome. So it's a beautiful photo, and we were going to use it in court um, and say to the judge that the rainbow did it. Um, but we thought, well, that, that probably, no, that wasn't going to be a good, strong argument at all. Um, so we went to... Um, we went to jail, and we also realised that we hadn't fasted for an extended period, so we fasted for five days, um, water only, and it was very cold, and it was a great experience when you're in jail and you're praying for the world, you're praying for peace and justice, um, you're very hungry. The cops in the cells were, uh, you know, who were running the place were great. They gave us sort of a, um, a few cells and left the doors open and just closed the corridors so we were together. So we had a really amazing five days. We were told a priest was going to come and see us on the Sunday before court on the Monday. And we were so excited about, you know, having Eucharist in jail. That was, like, quite special for us. Um, but the guy came in, and he was so nervous and hostile. Um, and we were sort of expecting some kind of wonderful, spiritual, euphoric kind of Holy Spirit moment. And it was really cold. It was really horrible. But we, we sat there for quite a long time, and then... We had a little joke about, oh, it's, you know, it's like 30 seconds after the priest was due because uh, he was there such a short amount of time. And then, I don't know if you've ever been in situations like this, but you get the giggles. So we got the giggles. We started giggling, <laughs> we started laughing, and then you got these three grown men who are laughing. We were laughing um, until we were shaking. We were laughing, and the tears were running down our cheeks. Our cheeks got sore because we were laughing so long. I don't know what the cops were thinking, but it was like a real Holy Spirit moment where we were just full of the joy of the Lord. We'd received this bundle of emails 
And a lot of them were not glowing. A lot of them were not as supportive as we would have liked, and some of them were very hurtful. And so we were a little bit down, but it was, it was a lovely moment where we had this joy that surpasses understanding that descended on us. Mm-hmm. When we had the trial, we occupied Catherine Mansfield Park, a couple of hundred people. We built a huge shrine, which was absolutely enormous, big enough to walk into filled it with pictures of the dead, the dying, the victims, the saints, the heroes, the martyrs, the perpetrators, the military, and candles, 100 beeswax candles, just a gorgeous shrine. And that was there day and night for a week during our trial. And there was one night when all the kids, all the youth, all the teenagers, young adults were all around the shrine, two in the morning, and there was a security guy in a car watching, watching on day one, day two, da-da-da, and then the young guys was always offering the security guy coffee and tea, you know, being friendly, being nice. He's sitting in his car, bored, shitless. So they got to know him a little bit. And then one night he finishes his shift at, you know, four in the morning, goes home, comes back in his civilian clothes, takes off his uniform, his security uniform, joins the circle around the shrine. Mm. And then one young woman says, oh, who's ever had an experience of Jesus? And everyone's going in the story about Easter camp and this and, you know, this wonderful Anglican church and these nice things that have happened in all these nice places. And then it gets around to the security guy and he just said, look, I'm just feeling really close to Jesus right now. Mm. Um, and so the enemy, um, the other is drawn into the family, into the fellowship, mm. into the community. After a eight-day trial, um, which has had lots of interesting stories and twists, um, we get acquitted on all charges mm. by a jury of our peers. And that was a wonderful story with lots of different episodes. But one of the highlights was um, the security staff at the courts, the correction staff who also work in the courts, and the registrar hugging us, people in tears of joy, the court staff in tears of joy at our acquittal. Mm. Huge public gallery of supporters. It was just a joyous party and just a wonderful occasion. The Crown announced they were going to sue us for $1.2 million, so that ended up a whole new series of court struggles. So we're at the appeal court, and we're getting a spanking in the appeal court, losing badly, and we just feel that um, we should use Matthew 5, 24, when someone takes you to court and sues you for your cloak, give your tunic as well. And in a two-garment society, Jesus advocating public nudity. So we go, a whole bunch of us, take off our clothes, make a big pile outside the, um, the appeal court, and then walk over to Parliament and give John Key all our clothing. If you want to sue us, we've got nothing. But you guys naked at this stage. Uh, we decided to go underwear. Right. Um, but I didn't have any clean ones, and someone went out and bought me some undies. Um, but they were too small, so I had these white undies that were far too small. Uh, luckily, it was a very cold day, so um, um, and so it was quite. It was quite. It was pretty humiliating, but it was lovely. You know, women. Guys, older people, we're all there, and we're all in their undies. Um, and then finally, um, the Crown drop all proceedings against us and um, cease and desist and stop suing us, and the whole thing's over. So it's an interesting story. It's not about getting off, but it's about, I think... Um, Using non-violent tactics, um, using profound Jesus love for your enemies. Um, it's hard to fight that stuff. And our elderly priest, you know, Peter, goes on TV and says, for the last 50 years, I've been working in prisons and mental health facilities, serving 
those that society um, doesn't value. I haven't had a bank account for 50 years. Mm. I've got nothing. You're suing me? Mm. It's hard to fight that moral authority. It's mm. hard to fight that Christian charity. Mm. And all the government want is money. And here's this beautiful elderly priest um, saying, look, I've given all I've got, um, but you want more? Take that too. You know, mm. you can't take what I've got because mm. what I've got is Jesus. Mm. And he's not going anywhere. Um, but you can have him too because he's big enough for us all. Gosh, that is, you couldn't make that stuff up. No. It is exceptional. It's its bizarre. It's a great yarn. I guess one of the immediate things that, that comes to mind is, um, I don't know any Christians who are living that way. Right. Like, aside from 80, I don't know any Christians who believe in something that deeply to do something like that about it. And I think, you know, we all probably know of or have heard of activists who have done different things of civil disobedience but one of the things you hear in AD's story is that he just loves Jesus like he deeply loves and follows and believes in Jesus and believes that Jesus led him to this act of tremendous civil disobedience and destruction the kind of young people I work with there's this real desire to find purpose Mm. to find calling they want to have a life that is meaningful, a Mm. life that leaves a mark, Mm. um, a life that speaks. And yet there's just this huge challenge. How do do they find that life? Mm. And there's a real fantasy in some ways. You know, when you hear a story like 80s where you go, gosh, well, that guy's leading a meaningful life. Mm. Hey, Mm. of course no one's buying a crane. (laughs) (laughs) Or or, or crashing it for that matter. (laughs) Where do you get a crane? Uh, Yeah, I don't know. I, I Anyway, that is exceptional. But it does speak, doesn't it, to the fact that actually a lot of people I know, they want to have a conscience that speaks like 80s Mm. spoke, and yet I think they really struggle to know what to do with their lives. I I wonder if there is is something within this of placing ourselves around those who have an alive and an active conscience right, and have, have fanned into flame, you know, some of that holy discontent and can fan that into flame with us. You know, there's that, that kind of parable of the blind leading the blind. It's kind of also, I think, the sleeping masses kind of waken the sleeping masses, right? Yeah, yeah. And there's actually like that need for us to be awoken. Um, mm. And I guess that's the prophetic voice really, isn't it? That we, the voice of the prophet in the scriptures was always to awaken the people to the thing they had fallen asleep to. And it needs a prophet, a prophetic voice, to awaken us from our slumber. And it seems that our our response to prophetic voices is kind of occasionally we hear them and then it draws us to repentance, but that's incredibly painful. Mm. But most of the time we kill them or destroy them, eh? Well, that has been the, that has been the tendency. That's right, yeah. It's, uh, it's interesting, too. I, I have a, a number of people from overseas who come and visit me. You mm. know, I, I work in a university, and so you have different sort of visiting people who, you know, going around from different countries, Europe, um, the States, uh, England. And the thing they notice is that New Zealand has a particular quirk Mm -hmm. that we, the apathy is real here in a way that disturbs them and Mm. in a way that they often haven't seen before. So I think we often assume everyone's as apathetic as we are. Yeah. I mean, I know apathy is loaded. It's like apathetic, numb. The will is very weak Mm. with us right now. Mm. And so I've often asked them, oh, what should we do? What do you do with your people like Mm. this at home? And they're like, hmm. More your issue. 
<laughs> You're like, yeah, well, look, we have a bit of this, but not like not like this. Um, mm. Yeah, we, we, we're not sure. And I think it's a very real issue for um, those of us trying to find our way in New Zealand. I think there is a real sense that we are sleepwalking through life. Yeah, I, I, I remember a really good metaphor for this. I'm not sure who it was. It might have been Ira Glass or someone a few years ago said, it's like the flavor has gone out of my gum. Mm. And I feel like that's like a lot of millennials as it's like the flavor's gone out of the gum of life. It just feels flatlined. Yeah. And, the, and the, the ability to be awoken or provoked or poked into any kind of a response, let alone the kind of response that AD did, where he's literally basically taken the words of the scriptures, the words of Jesus, as pragmatically as you could yeah. to their absolute nth degree. So so that's that's obviously not everybody, but I feel like even at that awakening level, the idea that that we could look upon an image which would disturb us enough to awaken and to go and, to trade me and buy a crane. To go to trade me and buy a crane. <laughs> when was the last time, people, that you saw something which sent you to trade me to buy a crane? Yeah, I know. There's an old saying that says if you want to heat up a cold cup of water, um, you don't pour lukewarm water into that. Yeah. You know, if you want to turn the temperature up of a, of a cup of tea that's gone cold, you pour boiling water into it. So what we need to see is um, maybe some like red hot examples of people with calling and conviction prophets, poets of our age that actually try to call us towards what the kingdom of God could look like. Um, Walter Brueggemann, you said this, this great quote. He said, every totalitarian regime is frightened of the artist. It is the vocation of the prophet to keep alive the ministry of imagination, to keep on conjuring and proposing alternative futures to the single one the king wants to urge as the only thinkable one. So like what he's saying is... These people like uh, activists, people who make art, the people who help stir us mm. to see what could be, mm. be it in their actions or be it in their craft, mm. that in fact, even though the temptation was to want to destroy them, mm. they are the ones that so often God uses in times of, of sleepiness yep. to call us into a vision of what God's vision mm. could be. Yeah, That's I'm, I'm reminded of those words of the prophets, you know, all who have ears to hear, hear what the Spirit is saying to the church, that open your ears, people, and that God raises up these people, whether they're artists or poets or whether they're activists like A.D., who have the special vocation to awaken us from our slumber and to call us back to the heart of the gospel. Okay, so what are we doing then? What's season three all about? We've got the sleepwalking young person desperate to have a life that means things things. How are we going to find our way through this one, Scotty Reed? Well, for season three, um, which which AD has so beautifully led us into, we are going to be talking about artists and activists. And what we're really talking about there is the role of the prophet to awaken people and to stir us to a more wholehearted following of Jesus. So over this next season, uh, you're going to hear us talk to people from all across the spectrum of what that looks like, um, from AD and, and his philosophy of nonviolence and uh, civil disobedience through to Grammy award-winning pop star Kimbra we're going to catch up with and how she writes her music. We're going to talk to Bishop Justin Duckworth, who is changing the inside of the church. We're going to talk to an Aussie poet, Joel McHero, and, and we're going to have a talk to a couple of my friends who are environmental activists as well. And what we're hoping is that both you and I, Spanky, sitting here and those who listen to this will experience an awakening where uh, the flavour gets back in our gum again, yeah, you know, where good. we start to believe that we can actually make a difference in the world. 
because artists and activists, of course, are entirely different, and yet they have a huge amount in common in terms of they're both sort of poetic energies. But I think the art is very exciting because they tend to deal with the interior space, right? Mm, mm. They tend to deal with trying to, to, to craft something that touches us beyond words. Mm. And then what you see the activists do is they live their life as that work of art. So they actually put their bodies on the line. Mm. They go out and they actually sort of do things externally. So I think you and me, we've discovered this over the past two seasons. There's this interesting interplay between the interior and the exterior life, what's going on inside, what's going outside. And so I think putting these kind of unlikely people together might teach us exactly what so many of us are looking for around what it looks like to get a bit more passion in our life, a bit more conviction in our life. All right. Well, hey, I'm on board, Scotty. I'm convinced. You've convinced me. I love the story. And I think there could be something in this. <laughs> I think, you know, I could be, there's worse things I could be doing with my time. Okay. I'm ex- like raising your kids. Yep. Yep. That's right. <laughs> Who are currently running amok down That's right. If you can hear anything, it's because they're playing with a hose unsupervised. There's a chainsaw and whatever, a bucket of bleach. Whatever it takes to get the good news out to people. <laughs> You've posed a problem that is worth solving. So I'm up for the journey. Yeah. So our next episode, um, you've heard today. 80's story of being a part of the Waihopai 3, uh, but next we are getting together with AD again to have a chat about his philosophy of non-violence and his philosophy of activism and the way he lives his life outside of the story to get our heads around his prophetic witness and, uh, and what we might be able to draw from that about how we should live our own lives following Jesus. Well, I can't wait to find out what would motivate a man to buy a crane. Because <laughs> he can't have that much money. I mean, a crane doesn't come cheap. We'd love you still to get your hands on a copy of the 21 Elephants book. Great book. Yep, you can do that at 21elephants.co. That's the number two, the number one, elephants.co. And go to that website, and you will also from the last three seasons. Hey, uh, this season, season three of 21 Elephants, we have the fantastic organisation, one of my favourites, World Vision, um, who've come on board to partner with us uh, so that we can make this happen. They've got this great uh, new thing that they're launching in 2019 that we think our listeners will be really interested in. It's called Just Living, and it's sort of like a dispersed community that they're gathering around some shared actions and some shared responses that people will have to the need in the world. Check it out, and big thank you to World Vision for helping us make this season of 21 Elephants podcast happen. And also, don't forget to get online on, on iTunes or Spotify and give us a rating, because that really helps people to find us. I just want to say a quick thank you to Dave and Renee, who record um, our amazing theme music for 21 Elephants and also to Tom Lark uh, who has provided us with our outro music that you're listening to right now and a special thank you to Lucas Thielman uh, who has been a massive help with me uh, mixing this season of 21 Elephants so thank you Lucas so much you're amazing Yeah, yeah. 21 hours by Scotty Wee.